0: You're listening to a podcast from Northeast Christian Church. For more information about Northeast, go to ncclex.org. Thanks for listening. We are starting a brand new series called Freedom, as you saw by the bumper video. And uh, we're going to be looking at Galatians, the fifth and sixth chapters. So if you have your Bible or your smartphone or tablet, whatever you want to follow along, turn to Galatians 5.1. It was shortly after the emancipation that set the slaves free in the, the, the season that followed the end of the Civil War, when a former slave actually had an encounter on the street with his former master. And the master asked this question, how's it going? How are you doing? And the insinuation was, you know, if life's really bad, and it was for a lot of emancipated slaves... You could come back, and you could come back to the plantation. You could have your old job back as a, as a slave on the plantation. The recently liberated man said, you know, life is really hard. I mean, it's, it's, it's challenging to say the least. My clothes are threadbare. My house leaks. And the meals that I have are nothing like what I had on the plantation, But then he said, but there's a looseness about this freedom that I like. I love that phrase. There's a a looseness about this freedom that I like. I think everyone would agree we'd rather be free than be enslaved. There's something refreshing about freedom. There's something invigorating. There's something liberating. And in this section of Paul's letter to the Galatians, the Galatian churches, he focuses on this practical idea ...around freedom by focusing on what was going on with regard to the problem of legalism. Legalism defined is the belief that salvation is gained through good works. It includes the judging of one's conduct in terms of adherence to precise laws. The Judaizers were a sect in Galatia uh, who were legalists who required the obedience of the Old Testament law in addition to grace... They taught that observance of the law was the way to complete or perfect one's affiliation with Jesus. But Paul writes them to say that grace is enough. That's all you need. Grace is enough. The problem with legalism is that it requires us to be perfect, which none of us are. We're not capable of accomplishing perfection. Biblical truths are relevant, and they're extremely valuable to help the disciple to live like Jesus. But keeping the law doesn't make a person holy, because the truth is we're unable to keep every facet of the entire law, and the Bible tells us that if we break one law, we're guilty of the whole law. So Paul's writing to confront these first century legalists, But he's also writing to the Galatians because they misunderstand Paul's initial teachings that he gave about grace. So to correct these misunderstandings, Paul wrote this final section of this letter. Now, following rules is important. It's important to help preserve the harmony and unity in any group or culture. People who don't follow the rules are often seen as rebellious. But the Christian who lives by faith alone is not going to become any kind of rebel. Quite the contrary. He's going to experience the inner discipline of God that is far better than the outer discipline of just following a set of rules. No man would become a rebel who depends on God's grace, who yields to the Holy Spirit, who lives for others and seeks to glorify God. The legalist, on the other hand, is the one who eventually rebels because he's living in a bondage depending on the flesh for his success, living for himself and seeking the praise of man and not glorifying God. It is legalism that is the dangerous doctrine here because legalism attempts to do the impossible. It attempts to change the old nature by making it obey the laws of God. And that'll last for a while. But it won't last forever. See, legalism succeeds for a short time And then the flesh begins to rebel. The surrendered Christian who depends on the power of the Spirit is not denying the laws of God or rebelling against them. Rather, that law is being fulfilled in him through the Spirit of God. Look what Paul writes in Romans 8. He says, For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So Jesus made it possible, Paul said, for us to meet the requirements that the law mandated. And then we live after that according to the Holy Spirit under the direction of the Word of God. Now, the person who chooses to live under the law, they think differently than the person who chooses to live by grace. The person under the law says, if I obey these rules, I'll become more spiritual person. But here's the problem. You have to be perfect under the law. And that's what legalism requires. And you're never going to be that. Secondly, they think, I believe I have the strength to obey and improve myself. And you will for a while. But there will always be that moment where you don't. And then they'll say, I'm making progress. I am. I'm getting better. I'm making progress. But you'll never actually get there. And then the fourth thing they think tells us a lot about legalism. It says, if only others were like me. And yet, the truth is, under the law, you're still a sinner because you can't keep the whole law perfectly. No matter how you look at it, legalism is a dangerous enemy. And it's not just something from the first century. It exists today in the church all around the world. And when you abandon grace for a list of rules, some might call the law, you always lose. In this section of Paul's letter to the churches in Galatia, Starting with verse 1 of chapter 5, Paul explains what the believer loses when he turns from God's grace to follow rules and regulations. And he's going to use several images to explain what we lose when we abandon God's grace. The first image that we have is this picture of a slave. You lose your freedom when you abandon grace. Listen to what he writes in, in verse 1 of chapter 5. He says, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Paul uses another picture here. It's the picture of a yoke. A yoke would have been familiar to all the people who were reading this. Maybe not so familiar to us. But to them, this was a common sighting. And scripture, in Scripture, it usually represented slavery. Or service. And it was oftentimes emphasizing being controlled by someone else over your life. It, it, there are occurrences where it may also represent being willing to serve someone else. But the farmer uses the yoke to control and guide his oxen because they're not willingly going to do this if they have freedom. When the believers in Galatia trusted Christ, they lost the yoke of slavery to sin, and they put on the yoke of Christ. Listen to what Jesus said about his yoke in Matthew, the 11th chapter. He says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in my heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The yoke of religion is hard, and the burden is extremely heavy. And guilt is a big part of that culture. But the yoke of Jesus, he says, is easy, and the burden is light. In fact, the word that he uses for easy in the Greek means kind and gracious. His yoke is kind, his burden is light. The yoke of Jesus frees us to fulfill his will, while the yoke of the law enslaves us. The unsaved person wears a yoke of bondage, but the Christian, who depends on God's grace, wears the liberating yoke of Jesus. There is freedom in that, Paul says. Freedom. It is Christ who sets us free from the bondage of the law. He freed us from the curse of the law by dying for us on the cross. We read this in Galatians, the third chapter. Listen to what he writes. He says, Christ paid the price for free to free us from the curse that the laws of Moses' teachings bring by becoming a cursed, becoming cursed instead of us. Scripture says, everyone who is hung on a tree is cursed. That's a reference to his crucifixion. The believer is under God's grace. Thus, he's no longer under the law. Paul writes in Romans 6, 14, he says, For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law but under grace. Did you catch that? Sin doesn't have to control your life anymore. Jesus will break that yoke. This doesn't mean that you become outlaws to the law it simply means that you're no longer in need of this external force known as the law to keep us in God's will because we now have an internal leading of the Holy Spirit. To go back to the law would just, become, would just entail us to become entangled in this maze of do's and don'ts. There are some people, though, who feel extremely insecure with this freedom. And so they will hunt for a group of people, oftentimes very legalistic, where they will tell them how to make decisions. Actually, in many senses, making those decisions for them. Paul issues this ultimatum. Let me read verse 1 one more time. So Christ has truly set us free. Now make sure that you stay free and don't get tied up again in slavery to the law. There's another picture that Paul gives us of what happens when we abandon His grace, and that is the picture of a debtor. You lose your wealth. Paul uses three phrases to describe the losses the Christian incurs when he turns from grace to the law. The first of these phrases is found in verse 2, where Paul writes, Christ will be of no value to you at all. When you abandon grace, there's no value found in Christ anymore. And then the second The second phrase is found in verse 3. He says, he is obligated. That word has the idea of being a debtor. He is obligated to obey the law. And then the third phrase is found in verse 4. The first part, he says, you have been alienated from Christ. All of this culminates to lead to the sad conclusion that Paul writes at the end of verse 4, where he says, you have fallen away from grace. You know, it's bad enough that legalism robs a believer of his freedom, but it also robs him or her of their great spiritual wealth found in Christ Jesus. The believer living under the law becomes spiritually bankrupt. God's Word teaches that before we were Christians, we had a debt that we owed God that we could not pay In fact, Jesus talks about this in a parable in Luke the 7th chapter. Two men owed as the same creditor money. One of them owed ten times the amount of the other. But it didn't really matter because neither of them were able to pay the debts that they owed. So the creditor graciously forgave them both. That's the literal translation. He graciously forgave them both. Sound familiar? does to me. God graciously forgave me of my sin. He did the same for you if you're a follower of Christ. And no matter how much morality a man may have, you need to know he still comes up short of the glory of God. Even if his sin debt is one-tenth that of all those people around him, he still stands there unable to pay, bankrupted the judgment of God. God in his grace, because of the work of Jesus on the cross, is able to forgive a sinner no matter how large the debt of sin might be. You see, when we trust Christ, we become spiritually rich. Paul told the Ephesians, we have the boundless riches of Christ. Once a person is in Christ, he has all he needs to live the Christian life that God wants him to live. Yet the Judaizers would want us to believe that we were missing something, That we would be more spiritual if we practiced the law and its demands and its disciplines. The Apostle Paul makes it crystal clear that the law adds nothing because nothing can be added to grace. You can't improve on it. It's the perfect gift from God. Instead, the law comes in as a thief and robs the believer of his or her spiritual riches that they have in Jesus Christ. So in comparison, to live by grace means to depend on God's abundant supply for every need. That's tough in this culture. And to live by the law depends, means to depend on my own strength. That's my flesh. Paul warns the Galatians that if they submit to circumcision, which was a symbol of the law, If they submit to circumcision in these circumstances, it would rob them of all the benefits they have in Christ. To submit would put them under obligation to obey the whole law. Let me illustrate it this way. Imagine you are driving down Broadway and you run a red light. And all of a sudden, there are lights and a siren behind you. And you pull off to the side of the road in one of Lexington's finest comes up and says, may I see your driver's license and registration? And you realize, you kick it into, into high gear. You defend yourself. You want to litigate this whole thing right now. Officer, you know I ran that red light. I know I did. I'm sorry about that. But i got to put this in perspective. I have never robbed anybody. I've never assaulted anyone. I've never committed murder, of course. I don't even cheat on my income taxes. Try that sometime. The policeman will smile at you as he finishes writing out that ticket because he knows that no amount of obedience in any other category will make up for this one act of disobedience, will it? Now, what does Paul mean when he says you have fallen away from grace? There at the end of verse 4. It's important to note that Paul uses uh, an interesting word here for What's translated fall away, it's the Greek word ekpipo, sounds fun to say. It's a technical word that comes from nautical language in the Greek, in the Greek language, and it, it means to drift off course. While a boat is off course, it won't reach its destination unless it makes a course correction. But a boat that is lost has no basis for which to make a correction, This would seem to indicate then, using this terminology, that Paul believes that the predicament of the Galatians is one that's correctable. It's important to note that the people, the way the people fall away is not by inadequate attention to keeping God's law. It's by inadequate reliance on His grace. Then in verses 5 and 6, Paul presents life in the realm of grace. This enables us to contrast further these two ways of life. When you live by grace, you depend on the power of the Holy Spirit. But under the law, you must depend on your own efforts. And these efforts of the flesh could never accomplish what faith can accomplish through the Spirit. Verse 6 says, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. And faith works through love. Love for God and love for others. Unfortunately, the flesh doesn't manufacture love. It's always looking inwardly. It often produces selfishness or rivalry. And all of us who live by the Spirit, we have something to look forward to. Listen to what he says in verse 5. For through the Spirit we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. One day Jesus will return and he will make us just like himself in perfect righteousness. And the law has no ability to promise any kind of formula for perfect righteousness out of obeying every facet of the law, which we know is impossible. So the future under the law is bleak. The future under grace is bright. So the believer who chooses legalism and abandons grace robs himself of spiritual freedom and spiritual wealth. And there's another picture that Paul uses in the text, and it's the picture of a runner. You lose your direction Paul loves these athletic illustrations, and he uses them often in his letters to the churches. And these readers would have been very familiar with the Olympic Games, or there were other games as well, the Greek athletic contests that were around them. And they always included some form of a foot race. A contestant in the Greek Games had to be a citizen before he could compete. We become citizens of heaven through faith in Jesus Christ. When the Lord puts us on our course, we run to win the prize. We don't run to be saved. We're already saved. We run because we're already saved. And we want to fulfill the will, the mission, the plan that God has for our lives. Several years ago, one of my guys that I ran with and trained with when I was running Uh, David Mitchell, he was running a marathon, and he tells the story that he had found two other guys, who didn't know him, but they were running the same pace, about seven minute miles, and they were running along, it was early in the marathon, probably mile five or six, and all of a sudden a car pulls up next to him, it's one of the race organizers, rolls the window down while they're running along and says, you're off of the course, you've made a wrong turn somewhere along the way. You need to go up to this next block and go over about six blocks and then take a left and you'll be back on the course. It is a terrible thing to learn that you're no longer running the right course. I had asked him, have you ever run more than 26.2 miles? And he said, no, there's no reason to. We didn't train beyond that. And that day he did. We estimate it was probably 26.5 miles. I appreciated that. Paul writes in verse 7, he says, You were running a good race. And when Paul first arrived, they accepted the Word of God, and they trusted Jesus for their, as their Savior, and they received the Holy Spirit. And they had a deep joy that was evident to everybody that encountered them. And they were willing to make sacrifices in order to help the Apostle Paul in his ministry to other churches. He now, though, is the enemy. How did this happen? Well, if you read... The literal translation of verse 7, I think you find the answer. He says, you were running a good race. Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? Who cut in on you? In the Olympic Games or the Greek Games in that day, races, the races each runner ran, started by being assigned to a specific lane, And they had to stay in their assigned lane. But some of the runners would cut in on their competitors to try to get them off course. And this is what the Judaizers have done to the Galatian believers. They cut in with this false doctrine. And they have forced them to change direction and to go on a spiritual detour. so many words, they led them off the course. And Paul is writing to say hey, you guys are off course. You need to go up to this next block, hang a right, go down about six blocks and then turn left and you'll be back on the course. That's what this letter is doing. He's saying you guys are not on the course. Paul's explanation changes the figure of speech then from athletics to another picture. It's the picture of cooking. When he introduces this idea of yeast, in the Old Testament, yeast is generally a symbol of evil. During the Passover, no yeast was allowed in the house, and most of the time, worshipers were not permitted to mingle yeast with their sacrifices. Yeast is a good illustration for us of sin. It starts out small, but if it's left alone, it grows, and it permeates the whole loaf. The false doctrine of the Judaizers was introduced into the Galatian churches in a small way, but before long, the yeast grew, and eventually it took over everyone's thinking. The spirit of legalism doesn't suddenly overpower a church. It's introduced secretly, and then it grows, and before long, it poisons the whole assembly. In most cases, the motives that encourage legalism, they're good. They start out by saying, we, we want to be a more spiritual church. So if you're going to be spiritual, you got to do this and, this and this and this and this and this. And if you don't do those things, you'll probably go to hell. The intent is good, but the methods are just not scriptural. It's not wrong to have standards in a church, but we should never think that those standards will make anybody spiritual or that keeping of the standards is an evidence of spirituality. Before long, if we do that, we become proud of our own spirituality. In fact, Paul uses this idea of pride in uh, 1 Corinthians 5, 2. He uses the phrase puffed up, which is exactly what yeast does, isn't it? You put a little yeast in the loaf, and then you leave it, and you come back. And what has happened? It's, It's inflated, right? It's all puffed up. That's what pride does. And once we're proud of our spirituality, then we suddenly will become critical oftentimes of others' spirituality or their lack thereof. And this, of course, only feeds the flesh and grieves the spirit, and we go on our way thinking that we are actually glorifying God when we're not. Listen, God's grace is sufficient for every demand we face in this life. We are saved by his grace. We serve by grace. And grace enables us to endure suffering. And it's grace that strengthens us so we can be victorious. We come to the throne of grace and find grace to help in every need that we have. So how do we stay grounded in God's grace so that we're not, we're not led off the course? Let me give you very quickly, for those of you that are filling in blanks, four recommendations to help Stay on the course very quickly. Ready? Spend time regularly in God's Word. Nothing will influence your spiritual growth more than that. That's what all the research says. You and, your, and the Bible and learning what it has to say. I suggest that you read it every day or study it, study the Bible on a daily matter. Not, I'm not making some legalistic rule. I'm just giving you some recommendations that will help you to stay grounded. Number two, be accountable to a trusted brother or sister in the faith. If you're a guy, find another guy. If you're a female, find another woman. And talk and share and pray together. Be accountable to them to help you stay on the course. Number three, pray for God to reveal blind spots. Ask God to make you aware of areas in your life that need attention, where you're you're not walking the way that you should. This helps to stay on the course. And then number four, walk by faith trusting and living those promises that God has made in his word. Apply what you learned to your life. Live it. The best indication that we're grounded is when we're walking by faith. This is the way of freedom. This is the way to live by grace. Don't fall for the enemy's you know, intentions to to make you measure up to the law because you're going to fail. You'll have some success. But in the long run, there's going to be a point where you find yourself in the ditch because the law was never intended to be a a way for us to be saved. It was there to show us where sin was. But God sent grace through His Son, Jesus Christ. And it is the way of freedom. So let's live in it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the reminder today that your grace is enough. It is enough. We know that uh, sin wants to enslave us and many of us have been in that spot at one time or another in our lives where we feel like we just can't break this cycle. We can't get out of this. And we feel hopeless. But Jesus came to break the chains of sin. And everybody needs him. There's not a person here, Lord, who doesn't need you in their life to break the yoke of sin and to set them free. I pray, God, if it's the very first time that someone is hearing this, I pray they'll take a chance on you. That you would be the answer to the struggles that they face in their life. You could be, by your grace, You could give them a new course to run. I also recognize, God, that some in this room are believers, but they've gotten off course somehow, some way. They believe, they confess Jesus as their Lord, but the race that they're running isn't one that they should be running, and they know it. God, will you get them back on course today? Holy Spirit, just come alongside them and say, hey, you need to to take a right up here at the next block and go six blocks down and then take a left. You need to get back on the right course. Lord, we know that it's a good time as we begin a new year to reset grace in our lives. And I pray, God, that as we talk about this text today, that that would be just, that we would do just that we would find that I want to live by your grace, Lord. And we'll find that it's more than enough. It doesn't need anything else. It's everything we need. We pray it in Jesus' name.